We'll be in James chapter 1. When I was uh, growing up as a kid in Montana, uh, I thought I'd try to bring the temperature down in this room here by reminding you of some snow scenes. And we had tons of snow where I lived. We lived out in the middle of nowhere up in these mountains. And one of the things that uh, would take place like in the fall and in the winter my mom would start baking cookies for the holidays, and she was a piano teacher, and she'd have the piano recital at the little high school. And so she'd bake all these cookies, kind of getting ready for the event, and she'd put them in these Tupperware bins, and she'd put them in the deep freeze, which was uh, located in the little porch right on the backside of our little house. And uh, every once in a while, she'd tell us, boys, I'm the oldest of four, now you boys, just stay out of there, all right? I don't want you in there. And I want you to know, of course we did. We, we stayed right out of there, and that is an, until we got hungry. Okay, now, the scene looks something like this. Uh, we have some friends over, and uh, we like to play cowboys and Indians, and so, you know, you get some sticks out, some plastic guns, and you go chase your brother and his friends, you know, with these sticks, and, you know, run around all that snow on your snowsuit and stuff. Uh, you'd get tired, and the porch was one of the forts where you kind of regroup and kind of figure out what's going on there, and your brother's out there by the propane tank with all of his friends, you know, and they got all beat up, you know, and hopefully it's nothing too bad. And you're in the porch there with the dog and the deep freeze, and you're you're hungry. And then, ha-ha, yeah, I remember. And so what would happen is that urge would kind of come of wanting to have be the ability to just gnaw on some frozen cookies, you know. And so we'd pop that thing open, you know, and you'd jump up, you know, and you'd lean in there, and you'd be digging through, you know, and you'd be looking through, the, and you're looking for those Tupperware bins, and you pull them out, and voila. You know, come to think of it, we actually didn't even need a deep freeze. I mean, you could have just put a box out there, and everything would have been frozen, but we'd get those cookies out there, and it was just, you know, we were hungry. You had the desire. I knew where to get it, and, you know, like, what are the chances of mom coming out right at the moment when you're, like, halfway in the deep freeze? You know, pretty slim, and so we, that's what happened. We'd We'd start just chewing on these cookies. And, you know, actually my mom still puts cookies in the freezer. And every time I have the occasion to go up and visit my folks, I'm in there. So I, I uh, can we make a little agreement? No one sends this CD up north, okay? I don't, I'm not sure if mom's on to my little tricks now, and I don't want to break my record now, okay? So uh, that's what would happen. Now, I go into some rather great detail here because I know that almost – None of you here can relate to what I'm talking about. Right? Whoa. Wait a second here. Are you guys cookie culprits too? Oh, wait a second here. So wait. You're like me, huh? Have Have you done things that you shouldn't have? Said things? Thought things that you shouldn't have? Oh, look how silent it got in here. You know, you don't want to look at your neighbor, but you're sitting next to another person who's bought into temptation big time all throughout life. You know, isn't it interesting how our IQ spikes about 40 points when it comes to rationalizing sin? And we face this huge issue of temptation, whether it be a piece of candy that you shouldn't have or a person that you shouldn't have. And everywhere and everything in between. I mean, temptation is a reality that you and I face. And if you're thinking like, oh, well, you know, some of the older folks in our church, man, they must have it great because they never face temptation. They've, they've overcome that. They've come past that. Well, let me just tell you, I, I got news for you. They haven't. It, it strikes at every age. Even the folks here that are 80, 90 years old, they still face temptation. Now, I think the time in which we live 
uh, we're perhaps facing almost unprecedented barrage of opportunities to sin in the face of temptation. I mean, it is everywhere. Things that are on TV today as normal, even family fair, would have been shocking 40 years ago. I mean, the stuff that is just kind of, oh, that's just normal TV. I mean, it's soft porn. The vulgarity that takes place on an everyday field in movie theaters, magazines, what is out there, the Internet, and and just the, the great plague of pornography on a tool that can be used for such good is used to corrupt millions upon millions of people. It's out there. It's, it's everywhere. I mean, everywhere we seem to look, we're barraged from ads to sell soft drinks to tires. Sex is involved in it. And we're tempted by all sorts of things. Um, on Friday, my youngest daughter and her friends were at one of the, at the Baylor soccer game. And apparently they were throwing those little soccer balls, you know, so the kids could get them. And they, of course, didn't get one, but they were... So they thought, well, maybe some fell underneath the bleachers, and they're down there crawling around there, which is not a great place to be crawling around. But anyway, they're looking, and they didn't find a little ball. But you know what they found? They found an iPhone, and they're, oh, we found an iPhone. Well, being the good Samaritans that they are, they started climbing up the bleachers. They're underneath it asking people, did did anybody lose a cell phone? You know, and they're asking everybody. All right, that's just precious right there. And and some guy goes, "Uh, uh, yeah, I did. Hey, you guys stay right there. I'll come down and get it. They're waiting, you know, they're, they're all there, and they're, they're waiting for this man to come. Well, another guy comes down there and says, hey, did anybody see an iPhone? I just lost mine. And, they're, and then they realize that, oh, this is the real owner. So they, they gave that iPhone to that guy. Well, lo and behold, who shows up about a minute later? They, they see them giving that exchange. They see this, this other guy come, the liar, the guy who buys into the temptation, like, oh, that's pretty easy. It's like taking candy from a baby, only it's an iPhone. Even better yet, I'll just say, oh, yeah, I lost it, and I'll just take it from those little kids. You see what happened? He bought in the temptation, like, hey, I could gain myself an iPhone real quick. Don't have the password. Didn't think about that, but I could get it, and he thought he could take it. Friends, we face it everywhere. Uh, I may have saw this in USA Today, but this past spring, they actually ran a a little survey, they surveyed 3,000 folks about what sort of things are, are tempting Americans. And, and they kind of actually broke it up between males and females. And I'll just, it's kind of interesting. I'll just show you some of the statistics here. Uh, like sex, for men, 50%. Women, 22%. Uh, money, men was only 40, 14%. Women, 15%. Power, this was really interesting. Only 2% of the men they were, said they were tempted by power. Women, 7%. Food, Men, 29%. Women, 56%. I'm not laughing. I didn't say anything. I'm just staying (laughs) with. Notice how I am totally locked in on my notes at this point. I'm not even looking. Keep moving, Grant. You're in a bad spot here. Okay, alcohol. Men were 7%. Women, 2%. Now, we're like, okay, we may have anticipated some of those. Some of those may have been a little surprising. However, there's a lot of things they didn't ask about. Like, how about lying? I wonder how many of them lied even on taking that survey. We're out tempting. It is very easy to lie, and we're tempted to do it on a pretty regular basis. But there's other things like cheating, stealing, just being overwhelmingly angry all the time, coveting, uh, 
just being out of control, overreacting, dishonoring parents. Friends, these are things that we are just naturally tempted to do. And we face a plethora of temptations. And friends, if you and I do not know how to face them, what's going on, we're kind of like the equivalent of fish in a barrel facing a man with a net. It's just a matter of time before disaster strikes. In walks the book of James into our life. James is a pastor in Jerusalem. He is the lead pastor there, a church of significant size. Any spiritual leader worth his or her salt is interested in the spiritual well-being of his people. Spiritual leaders are not interested in just attracting large numbers of people. Spiritual leaders are interested in men and women, boys and girls, growing deep in their relationship with Jesus Christ. That is why he wrote this book. And so he, the whole book theme is all about maturity matters. And in chapter 1, he is giving the mindset of someone who is maturing in their faith in Christ. And last week, we saw this. Maturity cr- comes from growing through trials. That's where maturity comes from. Remember? Verse 2, chapter 1, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you counter various trials. Trials in themselves are not joyful, but the result is, what is the result that God is producing in trials? Verse 4, to make you perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. And that is what we looked at last week. God uses trials to develop and bring about transformation that leads to true, authentic maturity in Christ. Second, and that's what we're looking at today, is the whole subject of, tri- of temptations. Maturity comes from overcoming temptations. Now, there obviously was a problem. James is writing to all these Christian believers, many of them Jewish. They're dispersed throughout the empire and and the Roman Empire. And he realized that there's a problem. And one of the problems is this. People were blaming God for the temptations they were buying in. And so he addresses it. Verse 13, he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. There's something really interesting, and you need to know about this. The word uh, temptation and trial, they're actually the same Greek word, okay? So in the Greek text, it's what determines whether you, you translate it temptation or trial is the context in which it is found. That in itself is very enlightening to trials slash temptations we face in life because it's dependent upon how you respond to it is what it is. A trial is used to strengthen you if you grow through it. A temptation, when you buy into it and sin, it actually weakens you. So, for instance, she goes out and spends money that she doesn't have to buy things that she doesn't need. It could have been... A trial that brings about growth and maturity ends up being a temptation she buys into leads to sin. He goes on to websites that he knows he should stay steer clear from. He looks at pornographic material. It is a temptation he buys in. It weakens him and it starts eating at him. Now, he says, don't blame God for the temptations that you face. And he tells you why, because first of all, it goes against his nature. God cannot be tempted by evil. You see, a tempter to sin must himself actually be sinful. There is something about the enticements and seductions of evil that, that if you are to tempt someone, you yourself have to succumb and actually experience. God is holy. He is absolutely without sin. He can do no evil. And so that's what he says. 
God cannot be tempted by evil. It's against his very character. God is completely holy, pure, without any unrighteousness. No sin enters into his character. And then the second thing, he says, he says, not only is it against God's nature, God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. God's purpose is not to destroy you. It's to build you up. You are his holy possession. God is very interested in your maturity, your growth, you experiencing the life of fullness found by being united with Jesus Christ. That's how God works. He says, don't be blaming God. By the way, you know where blaming comes from? Well, that's a play, that's a play right out of the playbook of Adam and Eve. Remember Genesis chapter 3? Remember the situation? They were tempted. The serpent comes. Why don't you try this? She does. She bites into it. There's Adam. There you go. And he actually, he takes into it. You know, you know what took place there? Right after that scene takes place, do you know what Adam says? Adam says this in verse, verse 12. He said, oh, you know what? The woman that you gave to me, you, you, God, you gave me this woman. Well, then she, she gave me that fruit. See, what Adam was doing, he's blaming God. Hey, hey, don't be looking at me. You are the one that gave me that woman, and uh, you're not going for that. And, and she, 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 the one, that woman, she's the one that made me do it. And remember, and remember what did Eve do? Eve was like, oh, uh, don't look at me. You know I wouldn't do that. Who was that serpent down there? You know what? Blaming, making excuses, rationalizing, that's, that's exactly what Adam and Eve did. And that's what has, takes place. If you want to know who is destroying you and who is responsible for all this buying into temptation, you really have to know, look no further than the mirror. Mirror, mirror, on the wall. Who's responsible for this fall? You are. I am. We are. And so that's what happens. Instead of persevering, we just buy into the temptation and we make great excuses. I don't know if you've used any of these, but let me give you some. Like, what was the other person's fault? Or I couldn't help it. Or everybody's doing it. Or it was it was just a mistake. Or nobody's perfect. Or I didn't know that that was wrong. Or how about this one? The devil made me do it. (sighs) The devil, he made me do it. Or I was pressured into it. Now, let's be realistic about temptation. Temptation in itself is not sin. Okay? Temptation is not sin. It's something simply that you face by virtue of being human. And look what he says here. In verse 13, he says, let no one say when he is tempted. It's not if, like a few of you might face some temptation, so this will be very applicable for you, but the rest of you, don't worry about it. No, it's when. You and I are on a regular basis tempted. Temptation itself is not is not a sin, okay? It's, you should actually consider that, a part, that a, the usual regular part of the Christian life is that you and I are going to face the solicitation to do what is evil. It pops up at work. It pops up in rest. It can show up in our thoughts, our dreams, and scary enough, even sometimes when you're praying, something runs through your head. That in itself is, is normal. So if you're like, oh, man, I'm tempted, it's a terrible day, I'm wretched. No, we all face temptation. It's our response to it. Later in the book of James, he's going to say that, that actually even the devil, 
He's seeking to bring about his destructive work in you. But we'll cover that at another point here. But what you need to know is the process. And falling prey to temptation is a process. And that's what he's going to do. He is going to lay out what exactly is taking place. Now, think about it. People don't just live live moral lives and then just suddenly commit adultery. No. Anytime, every time you see that happening, don't think like, whoa, what happened? Just perfect, outstanding, walking with God, and then just one instant, bam! Uh-uh. It was a process. It's a process that had been started for probably quite a while. Frankly, let's be realistic. Folks in here, some of you very well may be in process. This process may already be starting germinating and working in your life. And the right thing to do, as soon as you recognize that this is starting to take place, you've got to nail it and address it. That's what we're going to be looking at here. So what Satan is going to do is he's going to try to take advantage of you. And I'm going to just lay out his step-by-step scheme. This is the enemy's strategy. It is actually very simple and highly effective. Extremely. Very successful with this very simple strategy. We could actually reduce it to two words. The first word is enticement. And so this is what James does. He says, don't be blaming God for your temptations. Let me tell you what's going on. Verse 14, step one is enticement. He says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And these words carried away, that word means to like take wild game and lure it into a trap. It's used from the hunting world. And then this next one, enticed, it actually is a fishing term meaning to capture, to catch with a bait. That is what's taking place. There is enticement that takes place. There is an encouragement to go and to do what is evil. And notice it is his own lust. It's within you. The problem is inside you. You have a propensity, you and I, to do evil. And he's, he says it's like our human soul. There's something about it that wants to enjoy and find satisfaction in what God has said will actually destroy you. And so he says it is his own lust, meaning there is actually an individual nature to lust. OK, there is it's, it's somewhat different for each person it can be based on like inherited tendencies, your environment, your upbringing, personal choices that you make, patterns that are established in your life. It is your own lust, but it is your lust. That is the direct cause of this problem. You see. God has given us normal human desires, food, drink, acceptance, love, enjoyment, rest, sex. All of these things God has given, and he has also given us the context in which they're to be fulfilled and experienced. You and I, however, there's something inside us that wants to engage in in places and to do things that God says, that is not the way it is meant to be. You are settling for an inferior um, uh, point here, for inferior satisfaction. And so Jesus, Jeremiah, these guys made it a point to say, listen, the wickedness that's out there is actually, it's in you. Remember what Jesus had to say in Mark chapter 7, verses 21 through 23? He addressed it, he spelled it out really clear. He says, it is from within, from the heart, out of the heart of men that proceed evil thoughts and fornications 
and thefts and murders and adulteries and deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit and sensuality, envy, slander, pride and foolishness. He says all of these things, guess where they come from? They proceed from within and they defile men. It's from within. This is where the problem is. We want to go and find satisfaction contrary to how God has said it and designed it. But the problem lies within us. So what, what, how this works? There is enticement. There is something that is made to look good and for you to buy in. And then the second is, once you buy in, then we've got entrapment. That is the strategy. Enticement, make it look good. Entrapment, get you to buy in and bite into that hook. And so that's what he says in verse 15. He says, and then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. That is what happens. Now, no one knows just how strong these evil impulses are in our body until you actually try to fight them and resist them. Some people say, like, oh, there's just some of those Christian folks, they, just, they don't have any understanding of just how tempting it is out there in the world. You know what? That's, that's a complete lie. That's total foolishness. Let me tell you why. You see... If you want to know the strength of, like, the Russian army, you know how you find out? You fight them. Take them on. That's it. Wage war. And you'll find out just how powerful they are. On the alternative, though, if you just, like, I give in, I surrender, you can have everything, just take it all. When you give in, you never never experience the strength of that. They just, like, okay, prisoner of war. Off to Siberia, all right? You want to find out? how strong and how difficult it is, you fight the temptation. And we're going to talk about how you can do that. But the reality is, it is the people who are persevering and not succumbing. These are the ones who are actually realizing the victory and actually know how intense it is. John Owen, he's a theologian from the 1600s, he tried to paint a picture of, of this problem that resides within us. And this is what he said. He said, however strong a castle may be, if a treacherous party resides inside, ready to betray at the very first opportunity possible, the castle cannot be kept safe from the enemy. Traitors occupy our own hearts ready to side with every temptation to surrender them all. And so that is what takes place. You and I, we face enticements to do what is wrong, to say what is wrong, blow up, anger, lie, steal, engage in in pornographic materials in our head, and it all gets started from within. So, for example, when you go uh, fishing, you go to the store and you buy some bait. Now, when you buy all those worms in that nice little styrofoam little cup there, okay, you don't just like go out to your favorite fishing hole like, here you go, fish, bloop, 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 and you drop it out there. Because, and hopefully this is not new information for some of you, but the goal of fishing is not to feed the fish. Did you guys know that? You, you, you know that. Okay, good. You know what the goal of fishing is, don't you? The goal of fishing is to catch the fish, okay? And so this is how it works. You take this nice little worm. He's been having a great time in that little styrofoam cup. You take that little hook, you know, and you slide that right in there. And, you, and, and so you to do, though, you make this look like a free meal for that fish. And then you put the hook in the water. 
and you then, you kind of move it around, and you make it look and function like a worm. And so these fish are down there, and you're hoping that they're stupid enough to realize that, eh, you don't want this worm. You want other worms, but you don't want this one. And so you kind of go, and they, and then they kind of leave their little place of safety, and they're kind of checking it out, like, hmm, is that a little string I see up there? Hmm, I don't know. And, and then they're looking at that worm, and when they see that, oh, they focused on, oh, I bet that would taste good. That would be really good. Oh, I hope my Charlie back in the hole doesn't see that in the brush pile. I'm going to get it. Whoosh! And as soon as he bites in there, all of a sudden, there's a hook that gets lodged inside his mouth. And he's like, whoa, what's going on? And he starts going back and forth. And, you're, and then up on the boat, they're like, whoa, I'm either snagged or I got the big one, right? Okay. And you know what you do? You start reeling that thing in. Friends, that's how temptation works. When Satan is putting out things in front of us, which is happening on a regular hourly basis, of course it looks good. You don't go fishing with like, well, I don't have any bait. I'll just throw this hook out there. No fish in their right mind is going to go like, well, there's a hook. Well, I'll bite on that. Sharp metal, probably be good in my mouth. They never do that. You got to make it look good. You got to entice them. It's got to be interesting to them. And that's exactly how Satan works. Some of you have lures. And all that is is just kind of an exotic way to make it look like something they would be really interested in. And some of Satan's temptations are rather exotic. They are so far-fetched. When you're thinking in your right mind, you're like, what do you know? Never would I do that. And look at what he says in verse 15. When lust has conceived, it gives birth. He's likening the process to physical conception and birth. When it conceives, it gives birth to sin. Sin is the union of your will with lust, where you act on it, you move on it, you bite on it, and it gives birth to sin. Sin means to miss the mark in which God has intended. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. That's what happens when you and I buy into temptation. It brings forth death. Now, what kind of death is he talking about? Well, it certainly can be a physical death. Really? What? Are you saying that actually sinning could lead to physical death? Let me talk a little bit about life, salvation, death. All of us are major sinners, right? We talk about temptation, you're like, huh. We live in that world and we have succumbed to it. We need a savior. God has sent Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for sin. But you know when he paid the penalty? You know what he had to do? He had to, what? Die. For the wages of sin is death. He knew no sin. He was absolutely perfect. He comes down. He's going to pay the penalty for your sin. What's the wage? What's the bill? It's death. And so he pays it. He dies a gruesome death on a cross. Far from even the physical pain was just the experience of God's wrath that he took upon himself. God's holy wrath against sin. He takes it all because the wages of sin is death. And, you know, when it talks about physical death, even in the New Testament, there are examples. For instance, you remember like in the book of Corinthians, Paul was addressing, uh, talking about communion. And he's saying, you know, there's some of you that are weak. Some of you are sick and a number of you are asleep, a euphemism speaking of death. And you know what the reason was? Because they hadn't judged themselves rightly. They were not taking their relationship with Jesus Christ seriously. And there are multiple examples given in the New Testament where people either were 
lying to God, not taking their spiritual relationship with him seriously at all. And he says, some of you are sick, some of you are weak, and some of you are dead. Why? Because you thought you could take Christ on your terms. You could thought, well, it doesn't really matter. Saved by grace, I'll sin like mad. Your theology is messed up. And these are given as examples. But let me just tell you also that um, death takes place in lots of different ways. Um, and, and when it talks about death, sometimes it's a slow death. When we sin, it kills relationships, destroys happiness. Uh, it's like an infection that kind of takes place in our life. It's like, you know, like you have healthy tissue, but if it's infected and you have this wound and it's open and exposed and you got germs and viruses and it gets gross and ugly, it needs help. It needs to be attended to. And let's, let me just talk to you about what slow death looks like. You go out and you spend all your money on things that are just absolutely unnecessary. You can't afford them. It can lead to debt. No credit. And let me tell you, one of the major killers in a marriage, bad financial planning and stewardship. Let me give you another one. Say you develop a little pattern of lying and stealing. Will that be from government, employer, friends, your family? You know what happens? It leads to a point where they simply cannot trust you. You say something, and they go like, ah. And then they just move right on because there's a death that's taking place in that relationship. How about another one? Sex outside of marriage, real or imagined. You know what it leads to? Death. Breakdown of trust. Huge uh, relationship issues can develop from there. Friends, let me tell you, you can lose it all. Yeah. Death. That's exactly what James is talking about here. You buy into that lust. Lust, when it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Friends, um, you can choose. Your choice. You can choose uh, to your actions. You cannot choose its results. You can choose to go and have a lot of fun and get your kicks but you cannot choose the kickbacks that come your way. You're free to make choices, but you cannot avoid the consequences. You know, uh, Paul is saying this in Galatians 6. He says, you know, whatever a man sows, this also will you reap. If you're sowing seeds of the flesh, you're buying into temptation, you're going to reap a harvest, and it looks nothing like fruitful grain. It looks a lot like death. By the way, these stages of, of temptation and buying into it, this is exactly what happened in the garden. Do you remember it all gets started with enticement? The serpent comes up, Adam and Eve just having a blast in the garden, right? Everything is perfect. Obedience was a part of that perfection. They knew it. Satan comes up, serpent comes up like, hey, what's going on? How about the, hey, have you considered that fruit that's there? Ah, uh, well, Eve says, well, you know what? We're not supposed to eat that fruit. God told us, in fact, I'm not even supposed to touch it. You know that? I'm not supposed to stay completely away with it. Oh, the goes, did God really say that? Oh, God, what a spoiled sport. He knows that when you eat of that fruit, 
you're going to be like him. You'll know the difference between good and evil. You'll be like God if you eat that fruit. Eve's like, really? God's holding out on me. She's looking at that fruit and she sees that it's good. It looks desirable. Like, well, that'd be probably, that'd be really nice to taste and bite into. And then, and then she's like, oh, and the idea of being like God and, and knowing the difference between good and evil. And you know what she does? She goes and she bites into it. She went from enticement to entrapment. She bites into it and she experiences the result of sin. She starts to experience death. And then, you know, it's not just Eve in the garden. There's Adam and Eve. And Adam, Adam's standing there watching the whole thing. Adam should have been there with the hoe and said, what are you talking about? And that would have changed life forever, right? That would have been so much better. But you don't know, he's your typical American male. I'm watching football or the monkeys or something. And he is just, and he's just kicking back and he's like, oh. He's watching. Instead of engaging, he's passive. He is, instead of being responsible, he's rejecting that and he's just, whoa. He watches. And, it, you know, it's really interesting. The scripture says that Eve, she was deceived. But Adam was not deceived. He bought into it. He, he just, he knew what was going on. He knew all about it. He's the one that even told Eve, listen, don't even touch that tree. I don't want you getting near it. And you know what happened? He took it, and he is the one that plunges humanity into sin. Adam wasn't deceived. He bought into it. And as soon as he did, God's looking for him. He starts blaming others, blaming God, blaming Eve. Let me tell you about sin. Nothing is easier than to sin. Nothing's easier. It's just that we wouldn't buy into those temptations if we knew and thought about the consequences. Let me give you an example from the Old Testament. Remember David? He should be out fighting wars. That's what kings do. I think I'll take the year off, boys. Why don't you take care of it for me? He's hanging out at the top of his palace. He sees this woman bathing. Invites her over. He commits adultery with her. It all looked good. It looked real enticing. Sounded probably really good at the moment. I'm bored. She's beautiful. No one will know. It'll be fine. You know, if he would have saw the hook inside there, he would have saw the hook of the, the death of a baby or the murder of a brave, very loyal soldier in Uriah. Or, you know, what happens just even a little bit later. The violation of his own daughter, Tamar, and the disintegration of his family, it all gets traced down to a little wormy thought that had a huge hook and it took David to places he absolutely did not want to go. That's why James writes, verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Stop being deceived is literally what it says in the Greek. It says, this is already taking place. Stop it. Wake up. Do not be deceived. Well, How is it then that you and I can truly experience victory in the face of so much temptation and in the reality that so many people buy into it on a very regular basis, even Christians? How can we do it? Well, we need to know the truth about God and the reality of our relationship with Jesus Christ. James says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. What he's going to spell out in verses 17 and 18 is that God gives us the victory over temptation and sin 
through Christ. He says, what you need to be thinking about is God. Don't be deceived. Don't lose your focus. Think about God. He says, verse 17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Every good thing in life, your gifts, your skills, your house, your companionship, money that you have, food, the fact that you have intelligence, that you have skills, gifts, all of these things are from God. And those are things that we think about and they're all the cool stuff in life. You know where that came from? That came from God, by the way. Belongs to him. He, He gave it to you. You're just a temporary steward of these things. But think of the greater gifts. Think of salvation. His Holy Spirit. He gives wisdom. He's given his word. He gives strength, confidence. He gives Christian fellowship. He's given us the Bible. These are gifts from God. He says, think about the good things that God has given you. They're coming down from the father of lights. And the idea of lights there is that God is the one who is the creator of the moon, the stars, the sun. He is the one who has not only set life in the world in motion, but he is critically involved and he is continually giving gifts. He is giving every perfect gift. And with him, there's no variation or shifting shadow. God doesn't lie. He doesn't tempt to the man as he stands on the earth. It looks like sun and moon and stars are all kind of moving around. But God is absolutely stable and secure. He is the picture of stability. You want strength and maturity in life? Fix your focus on God. It's kind of like uh, people that have trained dogs. I don't know if you've ever seen this before, but one of the things they do is they they learn they have to teach that dog to obey the master. And what they do is they they put like uh, a piece of meat down there. It would be very tantalizing, some cheese or something like that. And it's right in front of Rover, right there, okay? And then he's like, no. And the dog, I could smell like, oh, steak, my favorite. But the master said no. And so it's really interesting. I saw this just even recently that the, the dog will not look at the temptation, but then look up to the master. And it's right there. He can smell it. It's right there. But his eyes lock in on his master. And he's just waiting for the order. And hopefully the order is like, okay, you can eat it now. But he is locked on. And that is that dog is learning how to be tamed under the power of its master. And that dog will become extremely useful, highly beneficial, because it won't be barking and running around and disobeying all the time and a menace to the neighbors. That dog will be in control. And you know how he does it? He keeps looking to the master. And friends, let's take a lesson from a dog. When we're faced with temptation, fix and focus your attention upon God and his goodness. You see, he loves us. One of the enemy's tricks is to try to get you to think out that God is holding out on you. That is absolutely not the case. He actually, Satan even tried this on Jesus. Are you hungry? Wait a second. You claim to be the son of God. You're hungry? God, the Father, is letting you be hungry? You should turn those stones into bread. You see what he's trying to do? He's trying to get even the Son of God to doubt the goodness of the Father. Friends, that is the ploy. And what James is saying, you and I, we need to fixate, continually, continually saturate ourselves with the goodness of God. And when we do, we will emerge victoriously from our temptations. 
Remember when Moses brings the folks into the promised land? He said, listen, some good things are going to happen. You're going to get wells and you're going to have crops. You're going to have families. But he said, absolutely do not forget God and his goodness. You fix and you focus on him. Remember uh, King David? Remember that scenario? Remember uh, Nathan confronts him on it. By the way, if you think like you're going to get away with your sin, like, oh, no one knows about this. God does. And he's in the business of bringing it to the light. It's, you're going to be found out. And so that was true for King David. I'm sure he thought, I got away with it. <gasps> Whoa. And then God sends one of his men, Nathan. He's a prophet. He tells him this cute little story. David, oh, totally, oh guy's got to be killed him. Kill him, kill him, kill him, kill him. And Nathan goes, guess what? You are the man. But the reason I point this out to you, look what Nathan says. What Nathan emphasizes is how good God has been to David and how David forgot it. And said, verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 7 in 2 Samuel, then Nathan said to David, you're the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. And he's speaking for God. It is I who anointed you king over Israel. I made you king, David. Did you remember that? And it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. Remember that guy's trying to kill you with spears all the time? It was me. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wife for into your care. I provided all this stuff for you. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. I gave you everything, David. And if that had been too little, God says, I would have added to you many more things like these. But he says, why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife, and you've killed him with the sword by the sons of Ammon. What Nathan is doing is he's saying, you know what? You got your eyes off of God and his goodness. And it brought you to a point of discontent, and you started wanting things that, that I had never given you. Friends, that is where the problem is. What we need is a God-saturated vision and occupation in life. And when we don't have it, we're probably succumbing and buying into temptation. Remember Joseph? We looked at him this past summer. Remember when he's facing that temptation, that woman, Potiphar's wife, said, come on. And she kept it with all her sexual overtures saying, come on, I want you to have her sexual relationship with me. Remember the final breakdown there? Joseph said, what in the world? No way. Listen, okay, God has given me all things. I, I'm my, Through my master, your husband, by the way, I have, I've got everything I want. All of these things, they're from him. I can't, I can't do evil in the sight of God. You know how he overcame the temptation? He was fixed and focused on God and his goodness. And that's what we need to do. God's gifts are always better than Satan's bargains. And by the way, Satan doesn't give gifts because you know what? You end up paying for them dearly. James doesn't want it for his people. And let me tell you, friends, I do not want it for you. That is why we are giving such close attention to this. This is real world. This is where you and I live and, and work on a regular basis. We're going to face temptation. We simply don't have to buy into evil. What we want to do is focus on the goodness of God. So stop focusing on the bait. Of course the bait looks attractive. Focus on the goodness of God. Now, trusting in the goodness of God, it's going to keep you from falling into the evil of temptation. And notice then what he says. You are made and designed for God. Verse 18, he says, in the exercise of his will, God is the one who did this. You might want to underline that. In the exercise of his will, your salvation is an active work of God. 
He brought us forth by the word of truth. It is a divine act of regeneration. He made you a new person in Christ. He did it, and he did it through the ministry of his word, through the gospel going out. He explains to you that Christ has paid the penalty for your sins, and through his resurrection, you can have life. It is through the ministry of the gospel that we have life, through the ministry of the word, through the word of truth, so that we are a kind of first fruits among his creatures. And you remember what they did with first fruits? First fruits were like, First fruit could be your first son. It could be your first animal. It could be the crops. When they Right before harvest, they'd take some of these crops that weren't quite ripe, and they'd offer them to God because everything was from God, and it was dedicating this person, this animal, these crops to God. It was an act of worship. That's who you and I are. If you are truly a Christian, you have been dedicated to God. You are, like the text says, like a kind of first fruits among his creatures. God is showing the world that the power of Christ living within a person can truly overcome temptation and you can become mature in his son. And so that's what we are. We are living examples. And so, friends, this is what we must do. When we are tempted to sin, we have to turn to our faith in him. As God's children, all of us, we're going to we're going to face temptation. And I find that my temptations, when I face them, they come out of a point where I'm not satisfied. I'm not realizing the satisfaction in Christ. I'm not focused on it. I'm not fixed on his goodness. That's when it seems like the temptations are the strongest. Paul said, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. See, God purposes trials to bring about maturity. He allows for temptations so that you and I, through the power of Christ, because we're new creatures, we're his first fruits, we can experience victory. Let me give you a promise that God gives us. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. He says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. God promises there is a way out. Just look for it. Just call out to me. Just think of my goodness. I'll lead you out. So let me just give you some just real practical points. Will you and I, facing temptation, let us fix our attention upon God, his goodness, and his grace in our life. Let us pray. When you pray in this way where you're focused on God's goodness, he brings to your mind things that are not in keeping with his holiness. And like, woo, that shouldn't be there. God, help me to deal with this. And by the way, if you're being tempted by the opposite sex, Pray for that person's purity will work wonders in your heart, perhaps even theirs. Uh, Call a spade a spade. When you identify that that you're being enticed, you're being like something's coming at you, call it. Say, well, I'm being tempted by this. Even say it. It seems to kind of take away the power of doing that. Call temptation what it is and reject it. And what you want to do is look for God's way of escape. And there's, by the way, stay out of certain places or certain sites or certain situations if you know this leads to danger. Okay? So, for instance, you're not married. You're with the opposite, someone from the opposite sex. It's not how close you can get to the fire. No. We want to live holy lives. Be careful. If you have an alcohol issue, don't like, well, I think I'll go into a bar and see how strong I am. No. Bad idea. And, friends, all of us fill our life 
with the good things God has given us. Christ, his word, good Christian music, the hymns of the faith, these great praise songs, godly friends, people that will encourage us, the body of Christ, fellowship families, get involved in a ministry because as we fill ourselves with life of God and his ministry in this kingdom, in this world, you know what happens? We gain strength. And what do you do for all of us who've blown it? Okay, I'm not the only one standing up here like, say, I've blown it at different times. We all have. We turn and trust Christ. The very same one that provides us eternal salvation provides us temporal cleansing in our day-to-day living. Let me give you a verse. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful. He's righteous to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He wants us living in the victory of the cross. And so when you're tempted to sin, turn to your faith in him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for just this amazing passage of Scripture. And I pray, Father, that for each one of us, that you would write this on the tablet of our heart, that we might experience your strength and joy in this life and be able to say no to temptation because we're saying yes to your goodness. Teach us, O Lord. We yield our lives to you. We want to bring you great glory. And thank you for the forgiveness that we always have when we just trust in you. Thank you that we can confess our sins and you cleanse us. Thank you for giving us strength in our hour and our time of need. We ask and pray all these things in your glory. Amen.